The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Thank you very much again for the privilege of being here with you. I want to pray one more time, if we might. Father, this is one night quickly upon us, and quickly it will pass. And I know, Father, that there are so many nights that have preceded us that have slipped our memories. Uh, This night may as well. But I pray your Holy Spirit would have his way with us, so that long after we can even remember where we heard certain things, we will remember what was said. It will be rattling around in our minds, and it will be affecting our behaviors, and we will be in more in love with Jesus, more in awe of what he's done for us, and that we would also, Father, be people who would be eager to take the message of his love and grace to others. Help us to that end, I pray this evening. Fill us with your spirit. Take the crumbs that are offered and let each person receive from your Holy Spirit which you have for him or her and let them leave satisfied. We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Yesterday we talked about the importance of adjusting the scoliosis of our soul to the plumb line of God's character and nature. We saw that he was a triune God, one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this teaching about God is supported by Scripture, it's affirmed by the councils, and is central to the doctrines and teachings of Christianity. It asserts that love and community has been essential to the character and nature of God from all eternity. Love and relationship is central to the Christian message, the gospel. And we saw that God the Father created the world and that creation itself implies intention. He had purposes for what he did purposes for each of us. God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. At the heart of the gospel, God offers himself to we humans who are estranged from him, and he desires to meet us at the place of our deepest need, and our deepest need is a need for him. And he wants to fulfill us with his presence and his love. And now we turn to look at the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to consider the good news of the gospel in relation to his work on our behalf, to refocus on him. We, we, we sang about it a little bit ago, his reckless love. There's no mountain he won't climb to reach us. There's no barrier he won't tear down. There's no river he won't cross. The eternal funneled himself into time. The omnipresent into space. And the all-powerful took on the weakness and vulnerability of humanness to reach us. It's an overwhelming story. And we look at the Lord Jesus then in this regard. In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, it says, consider him. Seems to me the Christian should constantly be thinking about Jesus Pascal said, not only do we know what God is like, but we know what man is like as we look at Jesus. We've forgotten our way. Our lives are broken. If you want to put together a puzzle with all of its broken pieces, you don't start with the corner pieces or the edge pieces. You start with the picture on the box top. And he is the picture on the box top. Consider him. Look to him. We see what he wants to make us into as he seeks to restore his image in us. 
When Paul was writing 2 Timothy, his last book he penned before he died, he's writing to his beloved son in the faith, and he's basically giving him last words of instruction before Timothy picks up the mantle and goes on to the next generation, taking the gospel to others. And right in the middle of that epistle, in 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. As Christians, Jesus should always be the central focus of our faith. Jesus should always be at the center of the good news we proclaim to others. And if we slip, then it's always time to refocus on him and his mission in the world. So let's take a moment to consider him. Who was Jesus Christ? I want to suggest to you that he was the most compelling figure in human history. There were over 300 prophecies uttered about him before his birth and life. They predicted his time on this earth. As a matter of fact, God became a man. God became a man. And yet he was born in very humble circumstances. Somehow God had managed to move the entire world for Christ's birth to be in Bethlehem. It had been prophesied he'd be in Bethlehem, but his father and his earthly father and mother were living in the north of Israel, not in the place where his earthly father's family had been from. So there came out a decree from Caesar. It came from Rome. That all the world should be taxed, and they had to go to the place of their family's origin to register in a census so they could be taxed. And it was during that time, Mary, who was nine months pregnant, gave birth. It wasn't in a palace. It wasn't in a life of ease. You can see Joseph almost going on his donkey, taking his wife to Bethlehem, finding out there was no room for them in the end. Too many people were moving, traveling, looking for places. And he goes back. You can almost see him shuffling back to the donkey where Mary was and saying, there's no place for us. This one guy's pretty nice. He has no place, but he said we could stay in his stable. But what's that? I'm so sorry, Mary. I am so sorry. I can't give you better. Every time one of our children was born, Claudia had a burst of energy. Uh, she called it her nesting moment. Where you, you women that have had children probably know exactly what I'm talking about. She just started scurrying around the house, making sure everything was clean, everything was vacuumed, everything was perfect. And I've often wondered when I started seeing Claudia do that as our children were born, maybe Mary did that. It's going to be okay, Joseph. Look, come on, we'll sweep up this stable. Matter of fact, look at that manger. It'll be a perfect crib. And here's Jesus born in an environment, a cattle stall, with the smells of cattle poop and the smells that you'd expect the place. He didn't pick the easy way. That's the world he was born into. Not only that, interestingly enough, he was visited by wise men from the east. Where did those guys come from? I have a theory You see, if you read in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says when the Messiah would be born and predicts it within just a few years of exactly when Jesus was born. And Daniel was the head of the wise men of the Babylonian and Persian empires. I have to think he wrote it in their literature that this was going to happen, be watching. And when they came and brought the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I have a sneaking suspicion that that was Daniel's birthday present for Jesus that he had put aside 400 years 
earlier with this caste that he had been the head of. And they come. Herod finds out about it, and even right after Jesus is born, he's a threat to Herod's rule, and threat, Herod tries to kill him while he's just a child, and his family has to flee. He grew up as a carpenter near the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You can imagine it. There was no Home Depot back then. He didn't go down and buy lumber at the store or a hardware store or a lumber yard. He'd have to go down and fell trees. He'd have to mill them himself. He'd have to plane them himself. He'd have to get the wood ready. We don't have any record of his father after he was 12 years old. My guess is Joseph died, his earthly father. And then Jesus being the oldest, we know there were six kids in, this, in that family, four boys and two girls. And Jesus being the oldest, he would have had to have taken care of things. Matter of fact, I think that's why he doesn't start his earthly ministry till he's 30. He had family business to tend to first. And consequently, he knows what it's like to have to provide for a family, their food, and take care of them. He doesn't work a miracle until he's about 30 years old. His first miracle was the changing of the water to wine. That meant any time there was a need in his family, he didn't meet it by virtue of some divine power. He did what we'd have to do if he had a sibling who was sick. He'd probably go out in the carpentry shop, make a table, put it on his back, take it to the marketplace. You know how those bazaars were in those days. You'd put your thing there. I can't imagine Jesus asking an inflated price for the table he had just made. But he would have asked a fair price. He knew what it costs for the materials. He knew what it costs for the labor. And he knew what a fair profit margin was. And you could see him saying, I'll take 10 denarii for this table. And the person would look at it, the table made by the God who created the universe, and say, it's a hunk of junk. I'll give you five denarii for it. And he would take what he could get, and he would go to the apothecary, and he would buy the medicine that he would take home for a sick sibling, or buy the food that he would need to keep his family fed. He knows what we've been through. He was tested in all points as we, yet without sin. Imagine him. Imagine the life that he lived. He had a commanding presence. Oh, he wasn't handsome. He wasn't good-looking. He wasn't the guy that you'd be immediately attracted to. Matter of fact, it says in Isaiah 53, too, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. But it was the strength of his personality. The authority of his presence was compelling. When he goes to call his disciples, some of them were fishermen. I think that would have been like going down and calling dock workers to follow you. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And these men left their nets and followed him. What was he like? He called one guy, Matthew, who was a tax collector. He said, follow me. And Matthew left behind his lucrative career to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you look at the disciples, there were some who were Roman sympathizers like Matthew the tax collector, and there was Simon the zealot. He was a, a rebel. I don't know how Jesus kept them all together. It would be like bringing together Republicans and Democrats to work in common, in common relationship. <laughs> Once religious leaders got upset at him and they forced him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off of it, he stopped, stared them down, and walked right through them and went back to business. What kind of a presence did he have? 
Matter of fact, religious leaders one time sent soldiers to arrest him, and they returned empty-handed, saying, never did a man speak the way this man spoke. And oh yeah, there was that temple cleansing incident. You see, it used to be that these feast days, three feast days, all Jewish men were required to attend the temple. Uh, Particularly at Passover, they were to bring a lamb to be sacrificed. Maybe in their family, they raised the lamb. It would be like a 4-H club, right? Raising the lamb for that year. It had to be a year old, unblemished. You could see this family pouring heart and soul into raising the lamb, and they would bring it down to the temple, but these guys in the temple, they knew people were coming with religious devotion, and they wanted to make money. So they would tell them, I'm sorry, your lamb doesn't pass inspection. What you'll have to do is buy one of our temple models over here, And by the way, you can't use the money from the street. You'll have to go over to that table there and turn in your money to get temple currency. And oh yeah, there's a price you have to pay, an exchange rate for that money. And so you had all this stuff going on with these people, their religious devotion, bringing them to the temple, wanting to serve God and being ripped off by their religious leaders. And Jesus twice went into the temple and turned over the money changers, tables, He chased them out single-handedly. He did this. What kind of a compelling presence must have that have been? Zeal for my father's house consumed me, the scriptures said. He was a commanding presence. He also performed remarkable miracles. His first miracle, it wasn't anything as practical as making leprous skin smooth as a baby's skin or making a blind person able to see or making a lame person able to walk. He saw this young couple in a village and they were having a wedding and they ran out of wine. Wedding feasts could go on for a week and maybe in a small village they only had one every so many years and here's this young couple and they want this day to be a great day. They ran out of wine And Jesus gave them not what they needed, but what they wanted, so that they could have joy on a day that should give lasting memory to them. It was remarkable. They had six stones for rites of purification. And he said, each one held 30 gallons. And he said, fill them up. Fill those up. Now go draw and take to the head waiter. I talked to a guy the other day, and he says, yep, so we know Jesus, exactly how much wine he made, six times 30 gallons. I said, no, that's not right. Those water pots were for the rites of purification. And as great a Greek scholar as Brooke Foss Westcott says, Jesus didn't draw the well from the water pots. That was preserved for purification. He drew the water from the well. He gave them an unexhaustible supply. And when they brought it to the head waiter, he said, you do differently than everybody else. Everybody else gives the good wine first, and after people have drunk freely, they give the bad wine. You've saved the best wine for last. And that's the way he was, giving best and giving better. The superlative Christ, water to wine for a poor couple. He healed the sick. He made the lame walk, the blind to see. He even raised the dead. He yells out. Lazarus, come forth. I think he yelled Lazarus because if he just said, come forth, everybody would have come out of the grave. (laughs) There was one time he was in the boat with his disciples and he was tired and he was asleep. Again, the God of the universe taking on the willingness to be weary as he served people. A big storm came up. The disciples are scared stiff. 
They wake up Jesus. I don't think they woke him up because they thought that he could calm the storm. Remember what he said, oh, ye men of little faith? I think they woke him up because all hands on deck, we need everybody to help bail. And Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea and said, peace be still, and it was calm. And those people who were around him said, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They came to shore, and they met a man who had a raging storm in his soul, the demoniac at Gennesaret, and he chased those demons out of him. As a matter of fact, what happened when he encountered Christ, that demoniac, and he's well, Jesus has to go, and he says, will you let me go with you? And Jesus says, no, you go tell your family what great things I've done for you. And in an encounter with Christ, that person went and told the people in Decapolis, 10 different cities, and proclaimed the message. There was a time when people were listening to him. He was talking for a couple days. They were hungry, and Jesus says, we're going to feed these people. Philip, I mentioned it last night, the calculator in mind says a year's wages wouldn't be enough to feed him, even a morsel. What do you have, he said. And Andrew brings a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. He says it's enough, and he broke the bread, and he broke the fish, and everybody left satisfied. Matter of fact, there was a time, too, when he came walking on the water. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there then? I don't know what I would have done. Would I have said with Peter, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you? Or would I have huddled with the other disciples in the boat, scared stiff? I'd have loved to have been there to find out what I would have done. But Jesus came to them walking on the water. Who is this guy? There's nobody like him. He also made incredible, noteworthy claims. He spoke with authority. People said, he speaks with authority. Other religious leaders would say, Rabbi Hillel has said. Rabbi Shammai has said. But Jesus said, I say unto you. It was a different kind of teaching. There was a time when it says in the scriptures, he was at home. I think the Greek construction is fairly clear that it was his home. And the people crowded in to get to see him, to listen to him. They were curious. There were religious leaders who were in that house as well. And there were four men who had a friend who was a paralytic. And they wanted to get him to Jesus, but there was no way they could get him in the house. So what do they do? They go up on the roof and they start tearing the roof apart. Did you ever wonder why nobody said, hey, what are you guys doing up there? I think it was his house. I think the Greek makes it clear. He was at home. And all of a sudden, the people in the house, they start hearing all the movement up above. And then all of a sudden, they start hearing the tearing into the roof. And then all of a sudden, they see a little hole with some dust particles coming down and the light shining through. And that hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, there's four men smiling down in that room full of people. And they let down their friend. And what does Jesus say to that man? My son, your sins are forgiven. I, I, I don't know a person who's ever lived a moment of real life for whom that message isn't meaningful. I don't know a person who's lived a moment of honest life who's not aware that they're messed up. We believe in the high ideal of love, but we have sharp words with the people we say we love most in the world. We believe in justice, and yet sometimes we treat each other unfairly. And if you don't think so, think about the last month, your driving habits on the road. Have any of you had conversations with people in the other cars? We're goofy people. And he says to this man, my son, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders start talking among themselves. Who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. 
Who does he think he is? And it's like Jesus overheard their conversation. And he says, what's harder to say to this man? Your sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your pallet and walk. Anybody could say your sins are forgiven. But in order for you to know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to this man, rise, take up your pallet and walk. In that very room that they couldn't get this man into, he takes up that pallet and navigates its way out, his legs strong and able to walk as if he had been through months of therapy. He was well. It's remarkable, remarkable. But the claims that went with that, that he had the power to forgive sins, in other words, that he was God. Uh, We go on and we see that he actually said he came from God. He said he had the power to assure people of eternal life. He said that, in fact, he was God. The place where he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad in it. The religious leader says, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say Abraham saw your day and was glad in it? And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. And he used the divine name and said of himself or applied it to himself. I am. I am God. There was another place where the religious leaders said to him, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, if you're the one that's been prophesied in Scripture, tell us plainly that we have no sense of ambiguity as to who you say you are. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. When he said that, he didn't mean like those who contribute to the Red Cross might say, we're one in purpose, we give to the Red Cross, or we contribute to this charitable organization. No, he meant one in essence with God, not just one in purpose. He claimed to be God. The religious leaders understood, and they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I showed you many good works. For which of my good works are you stoning me? They said, not for a good work but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. There was no ambiguity, no ambiguity whatsoever. His claims were unambiguous. That's why in John 14, 6, he could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Have you ever talked with somebody about Jesus and they're offended by that statement? They think it's so narrow This is an elephant, right? What is this? It's a pin, right? You're so narrow. Truth statements always have to have a reality that supports the claim. Truth is not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately. This is a pin. The thing that's interesting about it is that we never get upset if somebody says, this is a pen that they're so narrow. Why? Because we understand that that's true. And when Jesus makes this claim, it is narrow. And it's not false because it's narrow. Jesus may or may not have been the only way to God. I believe he is. But even if he said he was the only way to God, it's not false because it's narrow. It would have to be false because there wasn't anything to support the claim. But now we go back and we look at his compelling personality. We look at his authority. We look at the miracles he did. We look at the very things he said, and there's no ambiguity left for us. He was making the claim that he was God the Son and the only way to have a relationship with God the Father. Um, 
It was C.S. Lewis who made the statement, many of you have read it before, I know, from Mere Christianity, where he said, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists like the Indians, anyone might say that he is a part of God or one with God. There'd be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, couldn't mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you've grasped that, you will see what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open for us. He didn't intend to. He said, you will kill me, and in three days I will rise again. He said that his death would have the power to forgive us of our sins, the power to reconcile us to God the Father, the power to assure us of eternal life forever, the power to help us live a more resurrected life even in these days. It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. This is the big picture, the incarnation of what he's done. So, so what, what, what can we do with this? I, 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 I've spent most of my adult life, actually all my adult life, studying C.S. Lewis. I've been studying his writings for 50 years. I've been teaching courses on him for 40 years. I've lectured on him in 77 universities in 17 different countries. My mind is like a pickle soaking in the brine of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> C.S. Lewis was a brilliant guy. and One of the great teachers of the last century. And, 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 and Lewis had been an atheist. He had some sad things that happened to him that prompted him towards atheism. He, he eventually reasons his way through atheism, through its supporting worldview, materialism, sees its bankruptcy, reasons his way through agnosticism, finally becomes a theist. But he says he didn't think he could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. It was during this time in his life that his great friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, and he had a late-night walk and Tolkien says, you like reading all the literature? You like the literature of the myths where the gods come down to us? How come, as much as that you like that story, you don't like it when you meet it in the one place where it reports to be history? And that captured Lewis's mind. And on this day, in 1931, September 28, 1931, he became a Christian. He revisited the image of Hamlet and Shakespeare, and he said it dawned on him that analogy was actually a pretty good one. 
There's no way Hamlet could break out of the play as a character to get to know the author, Shakespeare. But he said Shakespeare, the author, could have written himself into the play as Shakespeare, the character, and made the introduction between Hamlet and Shakespeare possible. And he said, I think that's what happened in the incarnation. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. God wrote himself into the play of our experience and made it possible for us to know him personally. It's remarkable. And not only that, he wrote himself into the play in order that he might accomplish our salvation. The atonement, making himself available to pay the price for our sins. Our sins against the holy God were a capital offense. We couldn't take care of it ourselves, but God took care of it on our behalf. And the whole story of this kind of substitution, sacrificial substitution, moves us deeply. I can remember before I was a Christian, I was reading in a Reader's Digest, and I read the story of this little boy. It was back in the days when they did um, blood transfusions where they would hook you up to somebody else. You'd be on one table, the other person would be on the other table. This boy was a nine-year-old boy. They don't usually take blood from nine-year-old boys, but he had a two-year-old younger brother who was dying, and they couldn't find a blood match, and they needed to give him a transfusion in a hurry. The nine-year-old didn't really understand what was going on, but his parents said to him, your brother needs your blood or he will die. Would you be willing to give a transfusion to your brother? It still moves me when I think about the story as I read it back in high school. The nine-year-old got very contemplative, thought for a minute, and said yes. So he laid down on the table. They hooked him up to his brother. They started the transfusion. And about three or four minutes into it, he looked at his parents with tears in his eyes and said, when will I die? When will I die? It moves us. We hear the echo of that sacrificial love in some story, and it moves us. In our world... The highest award a military person can get for heroism is the Medal of Honor, and it's usually a result of one person laying down their life for another. The story moves us deeply. This last summer, my wife and I had a chance to go to Alaska. Wheaton College had an alumni tour, and they asked me if I would come along and do the devotions. They wanted some C.S. Lewis. They wanted some things on evangelism. I thought I'd do some background reading about Alaska as well. You, you know, John Muir went to Alaska. He had been studying the glaciers in Yosemite, the scarring of the hills. And so he goes to Alaska to study the active glaciers and their movements. And you know who he went to Glacier Bay with? A guy named S. Hall Young. Muir wrote his story in a book called Alaska Travels. S. Hall Young wrote his story in a book called The Mushing Pastor. S. Hall Young was a pioneer missionary to the Native Americans in Alaska. And Muir's trip into Glacier Bay was a missions trip, an evangelistic missions trip. You'd never believe that, right? Because people suppress that part of his story. And he was preaching with this pastor. And Muir wrote in his Alaska travels, he couldn't believe how these people took the story of the atonement, that story that moves us so deeply. Because 30 years before they got there, there had been a war between the Stikine and the Sitka Indians. 
And the chief of the Stikines knew that if they didn't get to work drying their salmon and drying their berries, they would starve during the winter. So he went to the Sitka chief and said, we've got to stop this war. Everybody's going to die if we don't stop. The Sitka chief said, you're right, but your tribe has killed 10 more than our tribe has killed. And the Stikine chief looked at him and said to him, I am worth the life of 10 men. And the Sitka chief said, that's true. I give my life then, he said. And this man died and brought reconciliation between those two tribes. So when Muir and Young came and preached the gospel to those two tribes, they understood the emotion of the story because they had seen something like it in their own history. It's remarkable. Sacrifice for the welfare of others has always deeply moved us. Our culture is full of examples. Think about the fairy stories you heard when you were a child or you read when your children were young. It seems you have this kingdom and there's a king and a queen and the queen is barren. And everybody longs for her to have a child. And all of a sudden the news comes that the queen's expecting. And there's a little baby born. It's usually a princess. And there's invitations to the christening. And everybody comes to christening, but somebody gets overlooked, and this person who gets overlooked has magical powers and comes and curses the baby at birth. And the curse can't be unwound until a prince comes from a distant land and either gives up his life or vanquishes the foe in order that there might be some sort of respite. And then usually the prince survives at some level, and the prince and the princess marry. Have you ever heard a story like that before? Does it sound vaguely familiar to anything like this great story of the incarnation and the atonement? I I remember when my kids were little, I was watching a movie with them, a Disney movie called The Jungle Book. It's the adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's stories. There's Mowgli, the boy, and he gets separated from his parents and he gets adopted by Baloo the bear and Bagheera the panther. He goes through all kinds of adventures, and they're trying to protect him. And there's a tiger, Shere Khan, who wants to kill the man-child. And there's going to come the moment where there's going to be the big showdown. And sure enough, there is a showdown. And Baloo the bear puts his life in harm's way. Looks like he's killed saving the boy. A bolt of lightning strikes the tiger, catches on fire. He runs away. They never hear from him again. But here's Bagheera the panther walking off with Mowgli, the boy, looking back at the limp body of their friend. And Bagheera, the tiger, says to Mowgli, Greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. I saw that with my kids, and I thought, that just doesn't sound like Rudyard Kipling to me. I pour through my jungle book, and I couldn't find it anywhere. You know where it is. It's in John 15. How did it get in a Disney movie? Fast forward many years later, I was invited to come and speak to all the Disney artists in Burbank at their headquarters. And interestingly enough, they bring in some speaker once a month, and all the artists sit in this big tiered room. They give them a box lunch when they come in, and the lecturer is supposed to give them 45 minutes lecture, 45 minutes Q&A. And they asked me to come talk about the philosophy of story and imagination in Tolkien and Lewis. So I went there. They told me beforehand, listen, this isn't a place for you to proselytize. I'm not worried about it. If 
If I can get them to be interested in the stories, the books will speak to them even long after I'm gone. But they said to me, any question though our artist asks you, you can answer them freely. You're at liberty. So I give this 45-minute lecture. First question, weren't Lewis and Tolkien Christians? Could you tell us about that? Isn't Aslan in the Narnian books a Christ figure? Could you tell us about that? Are there any Christ figures in the Lord of the Rings, like when Gandalf the Grey dies saving the fellowship from the Balrog and then comes back as Gandalf the White? Are there any other Christ figures like that in Tolkien? Uh, Wasn't it Tolkien who had the hand on Lewis becoming a Christian? Could you tell us about it? 45 minutes every question was along that line. I was amazed. Things over, the artists are going back to work. These 20 artists come walking up to me. And I noticed they were the ones that were asking the questions. They said to me, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, are you? They said, yeah, why do you think we were asking you those questions? (laughs) I said, well, I have a question for you. How did greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, get in the jungle book? And they said, oh, there have been Christians here since the beginning smuggling things in. But don't get us wrong, there have been other people here also smuggling other things in. But nevertheless, we're intrigued by that story. Do you know James Cameron, his movies? I have never in my life seen him in an interview where he doesn't take a swipe at Christians. He just doesn't like us. And yet when he wants to make a movie, whose story does he use? He uses the one story that always works, that always moves people. He told Terminator 2 about a woman and her son in this world and an alien who comes from another world who gives up his life to save them. What's the next movie he makes? More money spent on any film up to that time in history. $200 million. He made the Titanic. A lot of people who died on that boat. Everybody knows the story. He's got to mediate that historic incident in a unique way. So he's got incredible special effects. He gets Celine Dion and her ascendancy to do the music. He gets Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, box office draws. He, has every, he built a set a quarter of the size of the original Titanic, but he's got to have a story. So whose story does he go? Ours. A guy named Jack wins a ticket to the doomed ship, and he gets on the doomed ship, and what does he do? Immediately goes to the bow of the ship, makes the shape of the cross, and says, I'm king of the world. There's a woman stuck on the ship. She's in circumstances not of her own making. Her father's died, left them penniless. They'd been living a high life. The mother says, I'm not going to take the job of a washerwoman. You're going to marry this guy. And she arranges a marriage for her husband, for her daughter to marry a guy who's like the devil incarnate on that ship. She sees no way out. She goes to the stern of the ship and she's going to throw herself off. And Jack just happens to be there and saves her life. They bring the old lady now back after they discover the Titanic. They want to hear her story. And she tells the story of that night. And how after he had saved her life and gets her on the raft, he disappears as mysteriously as he came on the ship. They say, we have no record of him on the register. She says, isn't that amazing? But he saved me in every way. And Cameron knows there's a story that always moves us deeply. What's the next movie he makes? Avatar about a man who takes on the flesh of the people in that world and enters that world to be like their savior. 
Do you know what avatar means in Sanskrit? Incarnation. He knows what he's doing. Our culture is full of reference points. When you're talking to friends, you could talk about this here and easily segue to the gospel because it's rooted in a story, the great story. I remember one time I was with some students up at College of DuPage, and I was walking through the dining hall, and, and I saw a woman, and she was reading the, a book the likes of which I had never seen before. I, I, I can spot Hindu writing, and I, I, I mean, excuse me, I can spot Arabic writing and Hebrew writing and Greek writing. I'm, I'm never quite sure about Asian writing, if it's Korean, Japanese, or Chinese, I don't know. But this wasn't that. I knew it wasn't Asian writing. What was it? And I stopped, and I looked at this woman, and I said, please forgive me. I'm curious I'll get out. What is this writing? She says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hindu, and this is a, a, a Hindu, uh, it's a Sanskrit book, it's a Sanskrit writing, and it's a Hindu devotional, I'm reading it. I said, wow, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about, about um, your faith? She says, no. I sat down. I said, well, for example, what do you, what do you believe happens to you after you die? She says, oh, we, we are different than you Westerners. We, we uh, cremate our... our uh, people who die. I said, oh, I'm not asking how you get rid of human remains. I want to know what you think happens to you after you die. She said, well, we believe in millions of gods, millions. And they watch everything you say and everything you do, everything you think. And when you die, they judge you. And if you've done well, you come back at a higher state. This was her explaining it. There's a lot of kinds of Hebrews, uh, uh, Hindus, so I don't want... Everybody to think I'm trying to encapsulate all Hindus and what she said. This is, these are her words to me. And then, then she said, but if you do poorly, you come back in a lesser state like a dog or a cat or something like this. I said, let me see if I've got you right. You believe in millions of gods? She says, yeah. And they're watching everything you do and say and think? Yeah. And if you don't do well, they're going to judge you? She said, yeah. I said, that is scary. She said, we live in fear. I said, wow. I said, do you believe in the Christian God? She said, we believe in every God. Do you believe Jesus is God? Yes, we believe in every God. I said, he said, you don't have to be afraid. She looked at me with hope in her eyes, and she said, I know. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I said, how do you know that? She said, I saw the movie the passion of the Christ. The testimonies are everywhere. Our culture reverberates with this stuff. And if we're attending to it, we begin to pick it up. This is the message that God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. For the love of Christ controls us, 2 Corinthians 5 says. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
This message is compelling. People, you've been sent. It's interesting. Evelyn Underhill, who was an author who influenced Lewis, Matter of fact, he received a letter from her after he wrote Out of the Silent Planet, and he wrote her back, and he said, Receiving a letter from you is the greatest literary experience of my life. Twice she wrote him, twice he responded the same way. Evelyn Underhill said, All religions have their mystics, people who are hungering for God. Shouldn't surprise us, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. But she says, Christian mysticism is different. Because Christian mysticism is rooted in the incarnation. It's not just us hungering for God. God comes to us in Christ. And if we've encountered him, he deploys us in an incarnation-like way into the world that we might take his message into the world. This is moving. You have been sent, you who have encountered Christ. One time I was coming back from from giving some C.S. Lewis lectures in Slovakia. It was spring break. Wheaton College, and the people in Bratislava who I'd worked with dropped me off at the Vienna airport. It's only about 45 minutes from Bratislava. I'm in the airport. I go through uh, and get checked in. I go through passport control, and I go to the waiting room, and when I got to the waiting room, it was, it was, I found out the flight was delayed about three hours. I don't mind that. I, I like anonymity of airports. I pull out a book, and I start reading. It's not long before I see a woman. The room was about this big. I see a woman come in on this one side, and she's got a clipboard, and she's got a lanyard, and she's going up to people. It's a German-speaking city, so she's speaking German, and she's writing down things on the clipboard. I figure she's taking a survey for the airport. Sure enough, about 15 minutes, she comes over to me, and she says in flawless English, which gave me great insecurity, what was I wearing that gave it away that I wasn't (laughs) German-speaking? And she said to me, I'm doing a survey for the airport, and I said, what's your name? You can ask public questions, you know. What's your name? She said, Allegra. I said, Allegra, are you from Vienna? That's a public question. She's in Vienna. I'm not asking anything intrusive. She said, no, I grew up in southern Austria. Oh, well, then what brought you to Vienna? I'm a student. Where can I go with that? Where do you go to school? What are you studying? And it opened up the conversation. Every answer a person gives you, if you listen to it, they give you permission to go deeper. And pretty soon, in about 20 minutes, I know her whole life. I know that her father is the only family member still back home. He's a bitter and peevish person because his wife ran off with her lover to Canada. And Allegra said there's great reason for her to do that. My father's a toxic person. She had a brother who was also at the University of Vienna, but they didn't get along very well. And then she says, it's worse than that. And I said, Vienna, uh, Allegra, how's it worse than that? She said, my boyfriend went to study art in Florence and asked me to wait for him, and I dutifully waited for him for six months. He came back yesterday to tell me he met somebody better in Florence. Here's a woman who feels abandoned by everybody. She needs to know that there's a God who will come to her, a God who has come into a broken world. 20 minutes have gone by. She hasn't asked me a question. I said, Allegra... I know that you have to do your survey, but I also want you to know that I have been sent to you to tell you something. Then she thought I was a plant at the airport to see if she was doing her job. I said, no, (laughs) it, it wasn't like that at all. But I have been sent to tell you something. She goes through her survey questions. How long it take me to check in? How long it take me to get through passport? All the things you'd expect. And then she said, what were you sent here to tell me? I said, Allegra. The God of the universe knows you, and he loves you. Allegra, 
He loves you. Oh, Allegra. He will never abandon you. He loves you. She burst into loud sobs. Everybody's looking over at us as if I'm torturing this poor woman. And she says to me, but I've done so many bad things in my life. I said, oh, Allegra, he knows about them all. And that's why Jesus came, to forgive you of all of it, because he loves you. It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. We've been sent. I want to go a little further back. I'll tell another story. I, I remember when I was in college, I became a Christian at the beginning of my freshman year. I was so excited about this message that the incarnation occurred. I had an encounter with the Jesus we talked about earlier. And I wanted everybody to know that they were loved by him and be forgiven, could be forgiven. You have to take it completely by faith now, but I played football when I was in college. (laughs) And I made it my goal to share Christ with every guy I played football with every year I was in college. And I saw about 15 guys a season come to faith. When I started out on that team, there were only two of us who were Christians. And, and so we had enough of a, a critical mass that we started pregame chapels. We started team Bible study, all this sort of thing. And, and I remember at that time when I was a sophomore, there were two guys that came to our team from University of Southern California, Trojans. One of them was a defensive end who was starting in the Rose Bowl got mad at his coach in the locker room before they went out, took off his uniform, says, I don't have to play for you, and he walked out. Bonafide pro prospect. So he transfers into our college and, in fact, played one season with us and was drafted by the pros. But he came with another guy. This guy, Doug, was a, was a defensive end. The guy he came with was a linebacker. His name was Mike Ober. Mike Ober, in practice at USC, tackled O.J. Simpson and knocked him out. And they told him, you're off the team. So he transfers in. Mike Ober was the meanest person I ever met in my life. I did not like him. I just thought if I don't get around to sharing the gospel with him, well, maybe there are some people made for hell. (laughs) I was threatened by him. But sure enough, there came the moment when I shared the gospel with him. You know what? He didn't trust Christ, but he listened He listened. He asked questions. It seemed intriguing to him. He graduated. I was two years behind him. Two years later, I graduate. A few years later, I was a youth pastor. We took a busload of kids to Calvary Chapel to hear their Saturday night concerts. It had been five years since I had seen Mike Ober. And I go walking into Calvary Chapel with a busload of kids. And who's standing at the door of Calvary Chapel greeting people as they came in? Mike Ober, he looked different. He was transformed. And I said to him, Mike Ober, what's a bad guy like you doing in a nice place like this? (laughs) And he smiled and laughed, and he said, Jerry, I know Jesus now. I've encountered Christ. He says, I became a Christian. I kept up with him for the years. He, He went on to go into ministry was moving. I never saw anybody more transformed by the living Christ than Mike Ober. And then he got cancer. I was teaching at Wheaton College at the time. I went through Santa Barbara to see a friend of mine, and Mike lived over the hill in the San Inez Valley, and I had heard 
that three months earlier he had actually died of cancer. And when I was at the airport, his wife Linda happened to be there. And I said, Linda, my heart goes out to you. I've been praying for you. I was praying for Mike when he was sick. How are you doing? She was there with her cousin, and she said, Jerry, you can't believe it. There, there was this moment where Mike had been in bed for three months, and she said, you know how big and strong he was? I said, yeah. She said, he was down to 90 pounds with his cancer. And he was in bed, hadn't gotten out of bed in three months. And the day he died, he just said, sit up a little bit and said, Jesus, Jesus, and laid back down. And I went over to him and I said, Mike, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? And he said, I I see Jesus. I see him. And all of a sudden, he sat up in bed and yelled out, Jesus, reaching out, and his body fell back dead in bed. And I think the incarnate Christ who once came to this earth the incarnate Christ who comes to each of us when we meet him, the incarnate Christ who deploys us to tell others about him, is also the incarnate Christ who will be faithful and come to us in that hour in each of our lives. And we can be confident in him. And this is the story. God, who our heart beats for, meets us at the place of our need. And Jesus, the incarnate Christ, who has died for our sins and reconciled us to the Father and wants to be a part of our life so that we can have the hope of heaven. This Jesus is the Jesus that we've talked about tonight. Give it, let it give you confidence when you share about him with others. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I worship you for your goodness to us. I, I, I can't believe you sent your I, I mean, I do believe it, but it still overwhelms me that you sent your Son You created us fully knowing what would happen, that we would sin. And yet you went through with the whole thing. You demonstrated over and over again your love to us. You keep coming to us. You are persistent in your grace. We thank you for that. We receive it. And we also pray, Father, that you'd make us faithful and be equally persistent and and tender-hearted, not obnoxious, but tender-hearted that we would share that message with the people around us who still need to know. Give us grace in that process, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Tomorrow, we'll consider the Holy Spirit and his role as we minister Christ to others.